seek feedback about your funding raise. So like when things don't go well, <laughs> like, it's really important. And I think non-dilutive capital, and there's so much of it in Canada, is great to start. It's a flag for, for me, at least on the investment side, uh, if you're living non-dilutive grant to non-dilutive grant, like something's not right. So ask yourself, like, why aren't you getting VC traction? Is it, is it differentiated stories not clear? Is it the fact that the, you know, the product founder fit is not right? The, the, you know, the product market fit's not right? Did it not right? You're not talking to the right VCs. Is it a science issue? You know, across any of those buckets, is it a team issue? Is it a communication or storytelling issue? And be like ruthless to yourself. Welcome everyone to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just want to learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Welcome to Episode 22 of Reboot Health. Today, we have Dr. Zane Kassam. Zane is an entrepreneur, senior biotechnology executive and physician scientist at the intersection of medicine, engineering, and computer science. He's the co-founder and former chief medical officer at Finch Therapeutics, a clinical stage company focused on developing novel microbiome therapeutics. Previously, Dr. Kassam was chief medical officer at OpenBiome. Zane has authored over 200 peer-reviewed publications and abstracts and is an inventor on over 15 patent applications or patents. Zane received his MPH degree from Harvard University and completed his postdoctoral training in biological engineering at MIT. He was awarded his MD from Western University in London, Ontario, and completed his internal medicine and gastroenterology training at McMaster University. Zane, welcome to Reboot Health. Thank you for the invitation. Really excited to have a fruitful conversation. So am I. I'm I'm excited to dig in. Before we do, I do want to give a shout out, Zane, to MedTalk, which I think a podcast you were on about a year and a half ago. And I think we met around the same time, but I'm giving a shout out to MedTalk because he put you back on the radar. So um, much, much appreciation. I should have reached out earlier. I apologize, but here you are. I'm glad to have you on the show. Glad to be in the ecosystem back in Canada, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it. We will. We will. So, so I usually start out, Zane, I mean, I know you're you know, in the brief bio, co-founder of Finch Therapeutics. You were trained as a gastroenterologist, went to Harvard, did your MPH. Everyone is different routes to innovation in health sciences, I'm finding out from coming in through all different doors. But for listeners today, maybe just give us a sense of the arc of your career and that move from, you know, what I'm going to call clinical medicine to co-founder and where you are today. Maybe just add a little color for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think as a clinician, it always starts with a patient. And uh, I had a patient as a GI fellow at McMaster who was 82. She was British. She loved her grandkids. She loved gardening. And I saw her at like two in the morning with my like double-double from Tim Hortons <laughs> in the emergency department with a terrible case of Clostridium difficile. Uh, she had failed the most potent antibiotic. She was tied to a toilet. She was really distraught about it. And they kind of called us in in the middle of the night because she had to be admitted and she was pretty sick. And um, that like journey with that patient kind of changed my entire trajectory. The 
we ended up doing something called a fecal transplant, which many, I suspect many of your audience members know a little bit about, but the transfer of healthy microbes from the gut of a healthy individual into actually the patient. And, you know, two days later, she was gardening. And to me, that was like a tremendous shock and surprise. It was the closest thing to a miracle I'd seen in medicine through my entire training set. And I was just inspired. Uh, like the fact that she was like playing with her kids again, and she would like totally turn out her lives. Like it was almost like IV fluids, but better. Um, and so I, I ended up talking to my mentor and I said, this is pretty incredible. Um, we should write this all up because McMaster is the home of evidence-based medicine. So always starts with the literature. So we ended up writing up a case series uh, with, with, with our group, uh, which was the largest of its kind at that time. And then I kind of asked myself, why isn't everyone doing this? Um, and so I did a systematic review and meta-analysis uh, with, with another mentor, kind of aggregating the data. And it turned out it was pretty effective. It was pretty safe. But in fact, it was all case reports and case series. None of the clinical trials that change hearts and minds of doctors, patients, and key stakeholders. Um, and in fact, you know, 50 years had gone by, we put, you know, a man on the moon, <laughs> and no one had really advanced this technology. And so I kind of said to him, I think, this is amazing. I really want to like run, run with this. Um, and he said, if you want to do the clinical trials that change hearts and minds, you need to do some more training. And so that's the journey that took me down to Boston. And so I was very fortunate to get a full scholarship down to the Harvard School of Public Health um, to do my MPH uh, in quantitative methods. So half epidemiology, half biostatistics, but really just doing clinical trials. That was the plan. Come back, be an academic gastroenterologist, like a tried and true path for many uh, Canadian physicians. Um, but that's when like chapter two opened up and, uh, uh, and, and, and in fact, can serendipity struck. A group at MIT cited my work. And I was pretty shocked by that. I'm like, MIT, that's weird. They like invent the internet and train monkeys to control robots. Like, what are they doing with microbes? So ping the PI, thanks for the nature citation. Um, would love to get a coffee. Um, and that coffee kind of one thing led to another, so to speak. And it convinced me um, to do a postdoc within machine learning and AI at the Department of Biological Engineering. So Eric Ulm. Uh, pretty unusual at that time to go from clinical medicine, clinical trials to, to machine learning and AI. But he, I was just so enthralled by the idea of adding another vertical to the to to my skill set, and then kind of putting things back in can on pause for a little while, enjoying Boston and getting another flavor of experience at another institution, and so kind of jumped into the MIT world, which is a very different world. Um, and what and year was this? World, same? Pardon me. What year was this? Twenty fourteen. Like, wow. So you were really okay. You're really early. Yeah, 2013, yeah. 2014. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when I was, when I was with, uh, so when I joined Eric's lab, uh, Eric Allen's lab, um, you know, it's just, it's a very different ecosystem. It's not about impact factor, it's about impact on patients, right? So it's not about the publications that we have, it's about, you know, company formation. And so it's a very, like, natural part of the ecosystem. People are always talking about ideas, people are always talking about how to spin out a company, that's the culture. And a grad student uh, in Eric's lab called Mark, uh, Mark Smith, a great, great scientist, uh, kind of came up to me and said, hey, Zane, you remember that patient up in Canada? I'm like, yeah. He's like, it was really hard for you to find a donor. I'm like, you're right. It was very difficult. You had to ask friends and family, but like, heaven forbid she got in a car accident, you wouldn't be asking friends and family to donate blood. And I'm like, no, totally. Uh, he's like, well, why don't we start an organization that's not the Red Cross, but the Brown Cross? Uh, and that was the inception behind Open Bio, which is a, really a stool bank. Um, and that's the, that was my first kind of foray into starting an organization, co-founding and being the chief medical officer of Open Bio, which eventually turned into Finch. And that's kind of my way uh, into the entrepreneurial world. Wow. 
Great. So, so lots of, unter, uh, you know, lots to unpack there. And we're going to start kind of taking that apart, kind of like an onion. Want to start with open biome though. So you kind of mentioned something interesting. You met Mark in the lab. Um, you wanted to kind of move from Red Cross to the Brown Cross to really sort of close that gap in terms of getting donor. Was that, and it sounds like, and I want to make sure though, it sounds like he, you and Mark, I guess, were trying to solve a specific problem, or were you just looking at that as an interesting academic project to solve? And, and, you know, we'll get into it, but the reason, you know, I'm asking, and this happens a lot in life sciences, it starts out as an academic, then kind of you continue to find funding, grant funding, it's an academic, or some people pivot to find funding and they just stop the academic and kind of move it to a venture. I'm just wondering kind of how did Open Biome start? And then what was that pivot to finch sort of therapeutics and you know how does that transition happen because i think that's often where lots of stuff gets lost is in between that those cracks right yeah absolutely and i'll start by saying like open biome was in wasn't wasn't an academic exercise it was solving a problem for from a patient that we'd observed over okay. time uh directly both and from, from from different angles actually so you know I, I came from a clinical world um and that was like very clear and i you know patient experiences mark also his uh, someone close in his family now end up having a patient, uh, ha- end up having s- someone in his family doing a at-home fecal transplant. It's like, it can't be this way. This is crazy. And so I think the intersection of our lived experiences on the background of a kind of a clinical scientific nexus in the ecosystem that I think MIT brings made it move forward. Now, that isn't to say that we didn't want to leverage this in an academic context either. We published extensively about our experiences. In fact, you know, uh, I was the lead author on New England Journal of Medicine paper that looked at our donor screening program, and it was easier to get into Harvard than it is to be a stool donor, less than three percent qualified. And I think that that is you can have both um, in in the ecosystem. And for us, it was a huge um, aspect of making an impact by seeing a real world gap. So before us, only about eleven or twelve clinicians all the, across the entire United States were doing this procedure. So it was very very cumbersome. And if you looked at the literature, it was mostly because when you talk to people, it's mostly because it was really quite logistically cumbersome to screen donors. It's difficult and time consuming um, to actually do the procedure. People are dealing with blenders and coffee filters. It was, it just didn't make any sense. And so it was an operational innovation. And, you know, you often think of innovation as being like a slick algorithm or something out of a test tube, but there's actually something called an operational innovation. And that's where we really focused. And that was actually pretty um, imperative to, scaling a very you know important organization and still to this day where we you know not only did we spin out of MIT and you know grow to about 200 people we treated more than 65,000 patients across 1300 hospitals mm-hmm. in all 50 states and seven countries on the CDF side and then we did close to 40 clinical trials across all kinds of indications um, and what's most powerful actually if I, if, honestly is you know we did a, a geospatial analysis and it um, before before us, like as I said, only a handful of people were doing this. After ninety nine point nine percent of the U.S. population were within a four hour drive of one of our clinical partners, we really that's amazing. You know, leveraged universal access to this really powerful therapy. Um, but to, to answer your question, which is like did, you guys ended up pivoting to Finch, what was the the rationale and thought thought process behind that? And I think there was three main reasons for why we ended up um, going from open biome to Finch. So the the first. Um, patient-centered reason. Um, you know, I'm a GI doctor. I love doing colonoscopies. Turns out patients don't love getting them. Um, and that's how we were administering the material, predominantly by an enema or a colonoscopy. And we really thought we needed to move towards an oral capsule that was pharmaceutical grade that released at the right points to really scale this technology over time. And 
we're lucky for C. diff, um, you know, a single administration is very, very effective. But for many of the chronic diseases that were emerging, you can't um, administer a colonoscopy every day, right? <laughs> and so you need to think about uh, other ways of intervening in a way that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so thinking about a patient perspective, and we didn't think the nonprofit environment was the right environment to innovate in that context. Okay. The second was a precision medicine kind of based reason, you know, Back in the day, like fragile type one diabetics, we get a pancre- you know pancreatic transplant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we moved to insulin over time, right? Uh, we don't know we no longer really do uh, pancreatic transplants for, for fragile type one diabetics. Uh, thanks to Banting Invest. Um, but you know, at this time, we were giving the entire microbiome organ, um, which was very effective for C diff, but wasn't for all conditions. So, for example, in ulcerative colitis, a type of inflammatory bowel disease only one donor kind of worked. <laughs> so why? <laughs> um, and so we, we thought to ourselves, can we leverage the machine learning background that we, we pioneered of applying that to the microbiome at MIT to get to precision-based therapies in a, in a more um, uh, targeted approach, fit, fitting the right patient to the right therapy? And the last reason actually was more of a regulatory um, uh, reason. Um, you know, regulatory agencies were opining about where does this therapy fit? In their in their landscape, and they communicated over time that they felt that microbiota derived uh, medicines were biological drugs. They weren't like tissue products, and so in that case, they encouraged essentially very clearly um, a you know an FDA approved regulatory pathway, and that and then accordingly, open bond became an important bridge technology to serve the patients today. And that the, you know, the future was Fitch to be able to actually position this for therapies for patients down the road and develop an FDA approved product. So that was kind of the three reasons why we moved from a nonprofit ecosystem to a, uh, to a, you know, a biotech uh, that was developing new medicines. Got it. So as you, so it's fascinating, as you, you know, and maybe this is more traditional and maybe, maybe this didn't happen with you, Zane, in open biome, as you, as you move from what I'm going to say sort of looking at sort of early assets or technologies and life sciences, they are an experiment, you know, you're getting grant to grant to grant. You're starting to now think this does have sort of some commercialization potential. Grant funding is not going to sort of suffice. You need to kind of go out and who's going to fund it kind of a, I think a pretty typical route is, is obviously using venture financing because of the duration and the amount of capital that's required. One of the, you know, one of the challenges, I think, um, and and maybe you can debunk this, or maybe you can support this. I don't know, but is, you know, there, there's the technology is still early enough that there's a lot of risk. There's no guarantee that you're actually going to make it to market. So, so that's kind of one bet that you've got to make. And the other bet is, do you have the right people around the table to actually do what needs to be done? Because it is a long haul. As you you know, you started Open Biome as a not for profit. Maybe just like, did you have the right people around the table on open biome so you didn't have to make that decision as it kind of went to Finch Therapeutics? Was that a transition where you had to kind of move people kind of around or in and out from open biome to find a team that could then go and start to raise capital in a successful way and that could, you know, people had conviction against that they could take this the whole way? How do you maybe talk us through that? Because I think a lot of, you know, if I'm thinking about this and meeting a lot of PIs, um, some get it, some don't, but I think it's like, okay, it's all about the science and they kind of forget about the team and it's, well, this is no longer a grant project and that's not what the VCs are funding for you. How do you make that transition? How do you kind of de-risk this to say, great science, appreciate that, you know, you're an amazing scientific, um, you know, founder, but you might not be 
a person to be on the CSO and do the regulatory pathway, or you may not be the CTO or the C, whatever. H- how did you guys make that transition to yeah, no, I, I pride myself on being an evidence-based medicine, evidence-based life kind of guy. And so I wish I could say that like, I read The Founder's Dilemma by No Moth. <laughs> Everyone should read that. I wish I'd read it 10 years earlier, you know, before starting a company. But for me, it was a little bit more serendipitous uh, in the context, I think, of the entrepreneurial ecosystem where the support system was like one phone call away or in the hallway or across the street, right? And I think for me, in terms of at least this journey, in terms of our founders, uh, we we were pretty serendipitously a blend of different phenotypes. Um, so we had a scientist, you know, scientist, Mark was a scientist who was a CEO. I was a clinician, CMO. We had two ex-Bain consultants who were previously at the MIT School of Business. Um, they know each other well. And then... Um, our scientists and first business person went to Princeton together. So it was like an automatic connection. They were like knowing each other for a long time. And then in addition, we had scientific co-founders. So for example, Eric All was our PI. And so I was in the lab, Mark was in the lab. Um, Tom um, Brody was a clinician from Australia that I knew as well. And so I think this was a little bit serendipitous in terms of the connections, but we were all first time founders really, right? With the exception, I think I'd say of Eric and Tom was, scientific co-founders, which are a little bit different than the management team. Um, We had a lot of hands-on experience. And I think we kind of got our chops in this like early environment and open biome where we were able to scale very quickly and develop a track record. And we were actually an unusual nonprofit because we actually generated revenue to (laughs) to actually build a business through an interesting regulatory kind of um, uh, ability that was unique and a de-risk technology, right? Because that's the beauty of an operational innovation is that we didn't take a lot of scientific risk because okay. the literature had already shown that at least for FMT was pretty successful. The challenge was on the logistics and operations and the regulatory risk. And then when we were able to build that scale, that show adoption very quickly, then we, we, got, we got the credit uh, for some of those chops, which then carried over into Finch, which became... Of course, we had to bring in the right types of people to surround us as well. And I think that's a story we can talk a little bit more about. But we, I think the nucleus, the core founding team, was had, had done it together before. Now we're doing it together. So the storytelling was a little bit easier. But we also were very clear we have to bring in like a veteran CFO, right? We need to bring in a veteran CMC individual. We need to bring the right regulatory, translation medicine, clinical operations individuals to surround ourselves and find that blend between the academic innovation and the ability to to develop a product. Those are different but complementary skill sets. And so you need to have a blend of a team. And how do you blend that? That's a big question and one we can unpack a little bit too. Yeah. So I, I'm actually going to spend a little time on team because I think it's it's an important piece and certainly VCs point to that all the time, particularly in the Canadian ecosystem, kind of opining that the talent doesn't exist here, kind of, kind of period and full stop. And that may or may not be true. And we'll kind of dig into that. Um, but I but I am curious. So, you know, you seem to have had, and and I don't know, you know, you, you, you identified serendipity as a big role in getting the right people around the table. And I don't know if that happens more where you kind of built this in the Harvard MIT ecosystem. Is that sort of enigmatic of what happens everywhere? I don't, we can talk about that a little bit, but I'm just sort of curious, do you have any thoughts if it beyond serendipity Zane is like, if there's a PI and they're developing something internal and now they're thinking, Hey, I want to take this forward. Is that all they really need to do is have the motivation and the initiative to take it forward? Or are there sort of some thoughts and learnings as you think back saying, had I, you know, 
thought about this or had the experience, I actually would have did it this way as we take it from an internal, let's just say sort of, you know, I know Open Biome was nonprofit, but from an academic kind of development into um, a full-fledged venture? Like, like is, there, is there a roadmap that you've seen that probably is more successful than just hoping, hoping that the right people show up at the right party at the right time and like yeah. take a first? I think it depends on where you are in your journey of a company formation. Like a, a serial entrepreneurial professor is very different than a first-time founder. So let me take right. it from a first-time founder approach, saying, all right, I'm a, I'm a scientist in a lab that I feel like I've developed a really interesting innovation that could be very transformative. And we can talk more about this, but making sure that it's, it's, uh, the science is solid. Uh, and there's different types of science, right? Let's just be clear. There's what I call science science, there's business science, and there's um, investor science. And there's three different buckets that do very different things. Um, and so let's assume that it's the science science that's solid. Um, I, think it's a, I think there's this like tendency for some scientists who think they have an innovation to keep it kind of under under their hat for a little while and they could be very careful not to share it because they were worried someone's gonna run with it. Um, I mean, execution is everything. So I, I think my advice would be to talk to everybody uh, about it and to really pressure test it, which sounds counterintuitive, but I would absolutely talk to VCs. I would absolutely talk to tech transfer office. I would absolutely talk to pharma. I would absolutely talk to serial entrepreneurs to start to vet and validate really early. Because if if it just gives you a lot of ability as a first-time founder where your blind spots are and where you need to kind of build out. And it may not be you that are, are the ultimate one. You might need, you definitely need a team, right? And so the question becomes, is your model going to be I'm so impassioned and enthralled with this technology. I'm going to be the one that's going to come out of academia or wherever and start the company. Or do I want to be a scientific co-founder and take it some of the way and then hand it off? Or do I want to partner like really early with venture for an EIR to run it or, and I'll be part of that ecosystem because my first time or pharma, corporate venture, et cetera. So I think it's my, my advice would be, you know, find a team, but get it from complementary lenses. And I think there's, I think Canada is still, still growing in this. I think the Mars Institute is an awesome institute to go and start there. It's a great starting conversation. And then be able to be connected to the broader ecosystem to vet and validate. And, you know, that might even just be a copy with someone that's done it before saying, we should talk to this person, that's this person, to like very low hanging fruit, to something more formal and everything in between. So I think it, it's kind of mod pod type of advice, but I think there's worry that, someone's going to run away with my innovation. Um, and I think that's just lo- very low risk uh, overall. Got it. So, yeah. So I guess it's like uh, Eric Reese says, I guess you got to get out of the building. So to, to a digital health founder, right? I mean, they got to get out of the lab. So it make, makes a lot of sense. I love what you said. I'm not sure I understand it, but you said the science science, the business science and the investor science, I think. Unpack that for me. That's really fascinating. I've never heard that before. Yeah. So science, science's goal is to get like a nature or a science paper or, you know, cell paper, right? Like something that's really publishable. It may not be actually like truly applicable to human health or anything of that nature. (laughs) It may not be a translational pathway, but gosh darn it, there's a really good nature paper, right? Right, And of course, everyone wants that and everyone has to like back into some dot, dot, dot story and 20 years, it'll be a technology type thing. So like that, that, and that's okay. And that's necessary for at some point in the arc of innovation, it starts early, like super innovative, early science, science work. Business science is a little bit different, which is science to help 
demonstrate that there's a product here compared to what's already out there. So hypothetically, like an in vivo animal model testing the standard of care product to your new product, right? That's, that helps determine, oh my gosh, this is so much better than what's already out there in this model with these limitations. That's kind of business science. Investor science can be part of business science, of course, but there's some checkboxes that investors expect to see certain experiments, for example, to be done, even if they don't really move the needle on the business aspect. It's just kind of these like check the box exercises that sometimes need to happen. I think that's rare, but it, there are experiments that are like that, that kind of have to be done. Or even, for example, from a regulatory perspective, right? Like you just have to check the box. It's not going to really advance the business, if we're honest, but it's a it's a necessary uh, item of, of science. So like getting away from you know, using uh, animal-derived media to uh, to non-animal-derived media because that's very difficult to advance. So there's some things that are like not going to really move the needle necessarily from a business perspective, but are necessary for the development perspective. So those are the three buckets that I think you know I think about science in, um, and and that's those are the differences. And 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 Zay, the last question. I I maybe I'm wrong, but I assume that. Science can move between those buckets. You're not thinking of them as very sort of siloed. That once you're science, science, you can't go anywhere else. You're just saying depends on where it is at the, what stage and how you kind of perceive it evolving. Is that is that exactly. correct? Exactly. I think they and they're and obviously experiments can do all three. All right. And yeah. so, right. Um, but but I think in terms of like a simplifying kind of heuristic of thinking about it, because I think there's I think Canadians are very good at science. Science. Yeah. I think there's opportunities to continue to grow on business science and in, and kind of investor science. Um, I think that's where I see the biggest gaps um, okay. so far um, and opportunities though, right? Like those gaps mean they're opportunities. So I think that right. I think that's uh, part of it. Awesome. And we're going to, we're going to dig into that. So, so I, I, I do want to, you know, let's kind of use the investor science maybe as a jumping off point. I want to talk about, um, you know, what you did and I'd love you to put some time frames. I think I got, and I'm, I may be wrong, so I'd love you to put some time frames on it. But I think you guys went to 300 million raise in about 18 to 24 months, or some crate. Like it was a short amount of time from kind of moving from open bio to fitness therapeutics. But you can correct me. But I guess so. That's part of the question. But also, you are in, you know, what I think will and. I think most people would agree was sort of the mecca of bi biotech, right? I mean, Cambridge, Kendall Square, like however you want to define it, but you were there. Lots of exciting science, science or business science happening. Lots of you know robust ecosystem with founders and VC. So I think there's lots of exciting stuff. Talk to me sort of a little bit about raising capital in that kind of environment. And and I say this because while there's lots of capital, I would imagine, but I'd love you to tell me this. I imagine there's a ton of competition for that same capital simply because everyone is coming there as well. So I don't know if that evens out or if net net more capital still beats out the number of founders that are chasing it or maybe vice versa. I don't know, but maybe sort of talk to us about that phase of your life, how you went about it and maybe some of the learnings that you kind of came out of that as a clinician, clinician scientist, or sort of someone having to raise capital, what was sort of new, what changed for you? Maybe talk us through that a bit. And like yeah, I said, absolutely. in that, in that short amount of time, because I, I, if I'm not right, it was really, really brief. Yeah, we were lucky. We were able to raise a fair bit of capital over a pretty short period of time. We IPO'd pretty quickly as well with an upsized round. We had a partnership deal that was worth more than 40 million with, with, a, uh, with Takeda, a large pharmaceutical company, some oh. partnership. So we were, we were in a very, um, 
we were very fortunate um, to be able to kind of raise capital, to be able to put kind of the fuel in the tank to be able yeah. to move the company forward. Remember, that's that's the purpose of, of capital is not capital to be a kind of a feather in the hat, but to be able to deploy that capital because you want to show value and growth to, at the end of the day, as we all know, create new medicines for patients and make an impact. So we were very fortunate to do that. Um, I think a couple of like, I guess one, one like, like, interesting story and then maybe three pieces of advice um to think about like i was surprised how much you have to be a storyteller and how that story has to be fluid and change across not only the types of funders but also over the stage of your company and so let me unpack that a little bit more so there's this really uh, interesting, I think YouTube, I think it is, a uh, series called like Five Levels. And it's um, a, an expert who then explains a complicated technology like blockchain or machine learning to a child and then to like a high school student, then to a college student, then to a postdoc, then to like a, an ex, another expert. And that ability to communicate um, across different phenotypes of investors is like, so mission critical. And and maybe that's a little obvious, but the, the non-obvious thing to me is being able to diagnose where they are in their knowledge base very quickly. And I think the most talented individuals uh, that are able to kind of generate capital are able to make that diagnosis, like spot diagnosis, and know where to hit the story very mm. And I think that's a non-obvious point. Um, and, and I think that matters a ton. And when you, you know, at your very beginning, often you're dealing with angels, right? And that's a very different approach, more of a, then you're dealing with life science investors, which are very technical. Then you're going all the way to generalists as you're going broader, which, you know, go crossover investors are different and then, and then public investors are different. And so the way that you tell your story, the way that you shape your story, the way you take simplifying assumptions, that's, it's 99.9% correct. But sometimes we had academics they are like, well, this is not a hundred percent correct. I'm like, it's statistically significantly correct. It's like it's a simple assumption, right? And I think that sometimes that's where the science storytelling kind of collides with the business aspects, and I think that's a bit of a uh, you know an important point. But I think there are kind of three things that I think are like you know how do you actionize this? Like like how do you actually like um, if I'm an early entrepreneur and I want to and I'm starting to kind of like go after early capital, I think there are kind of three things. So like first, and this is like super important and maybe obvious, but be a connector with people and ideas. It's like, it's really about your networking. Like the more you get out there, the more you're talking, the better, because you start to build familiarity, start to build trust. And the thing is, tell them what you're going to do (laughs) on what timeline, do it, and then tell them that you did it. And that builds trust that you're accountable for your milestones that you're actually achieving when there's nothing at risk for them. You know, they're not like sitting on you. You're just doing this and like, they should get on the train because you're someone that executes and you've built trust in that. And I think that's something that's like really, really important. VCs love talking to academics and early, early groups, even just early, just a child. I don't need capital. <laughs> like I want to right. talk to you. <laughs> and I think the best time to raise money is when you don't need to raise money. <laughs> um, and so that helps that kind of thesis around kind of being a connector of people ideas. And actually I would argue connecting people that you think once you learn them, you know what they're looking for, that you send people their way that you think are really like, you know, you're doing them a solid by giving them deal flow and sourcing and, oh, you should talk to this person. You being a connector authentically, not as tra- not transactional, right, right, but authentically, right. that's good for everybody, right? So I really believe in these like connector pieces 
to be like have effect amplification. And so just think about that. Oh, this person should talk to this person, like check in with them, make sure it's okay. But, but otherwise be a connector. I think that's really powerful. The second is be really, it's hard, but seek feedback about your funding raise. So like when things don't go well, (laughs) it's really important. And I think non-dilutive capital, and there's so much of it in Canada is great to start. But I, it's a flag for, for me, at least on the investment side, uh, if you're living non-dilutive grant to non-dilutive grant, like something's not right. Um, so ask yourself, like, why aren't you getting VC traction? Is it, is it differentiated stories not clear? Is it the fact that the, you know, the product founder fit is not right? The, the, you know, the product market fit's not right? Mm-hmm. Did it not right? You're not talking to the right VCs? Is it a science issue? You know, across any of those buckets, it's a team issue, it's a communication or storytelling issue and be like ruthless to yourself and right. actually like make some suge- some offers of like, oh, is it this? And usually the VCs will react. No, it's not this, it's this, right? So everyone wants to be nice because serial founders that are, we want to be in good graces, certainly on the investment side, because maybe this thing doesn't work, but the next thing is, and if you're keep saying no, so you just be really like frame it as it's helping me. I, you're, you're knowing that's fine. It's great. No, it's not great, but it's, it's fine. But we're left to learn. Is it this? And if you give them an opportunity, that feedback is kind of a gift and like make a couple of suggestions of, was it this? Is this where you're maybe getting tripped up? Then that makes the door a little bit easier for them to kind of come back to. The last maybe piece of advice is around kind of fun dynamics matter a ton. <laughs> um, and so like, who's in your round? Like what, who's your lead investor? Is it like significant signaling for other investors in this round? And who they bring along on the next round. Similarly, I think this is something that gets missed a lot is like talking to pharma corp venture really early, um, mm. figuring out where corporate ventures, hearts and minds are aligning is, is great because maybe you can't get a VC, but maybe you can get a pharma corp venture and that opens up a VC later. Um, that's really powerful. And that was one of our tax as well. And then lastly, like, you know, this is more kind of nuanced strategy, uh, but I wish I had learned it earlier is a little bit around how do you put together rounds kind of round, uh, composition with scarcity and kind of fun dynamics. You know, FOMO is a very powerful thing. <laughs> Fear of missing yeah. is a very powerful thing. The environment now is a little bit harder, but regardless, there's still rounds that are being put together. And so how do you like achieve, um, achieve a lot with a little, but then give yourself option, you know, optionality to be able to, to actually uh, have an oversubscribe round and, you know, create space for individuals, but you have to be authentic, right? So, you know, and, um, VCs and, and investors can smell inauthenticity like a mile away. So just being you know clear and, and authentic about it. So those are a couple of like, you know, pieces of advice that I would share. Awesome. I know dig into that last point because other than sort of, you know, over, oversubscribing, are there other ways that you can sort of, you know, create a little bit more excitement around that. I mean, talk about that. But what I also wanted to talk about is sort of your learnings were, as I said, in in the Mecca, for, for lack of a better word, um, without naming any sort of MDs or, or you know, managing directors, VCs. Whatever. Talk, talk to me a bit, Zane, like you've been back, I think, for what now, 18, 24 months, I think now in Canada, sort of moving from Boston here. Um, I know you're still sort of active in the ecosystem on the, on the innovation side. Talk to me a little about the differences that you've seen maybe around what's happening around VC financing in general, writ large. I'm not talking about quantity or, or the speed of it, but just in terms of how deals get done south of the border yeah. versus here. And given those sort of three points, they're certainly applicable. Do you think they actually would have the same outcomes here given the VC environment? Or even if you do those things, which again, may be necessary, maybe they're not sufficient in this environment. There's just, just maybe some 
some thoughts on your perspectives, given that you've been on it. On yeah, side. no, I've, I've uh, see, I've been back in Canada for just over a year after coming back for some health okay. concerns from my family, and you know, my intuition coming back to Canada was uh, Canada likely struggles with an access to capital problem. That would be the biggest. That was my intuition. That was my prior coming into it. Okay. I was wrong. There is okay. not, in my opinion. Um, an access to capital issue. I think top Canadian VCs syndicate with big US VCs. There's an opening door. I, I think landscaping the Canadian life science ecosystem and chatting with a number of the leading stakeholders. My diagnosis is actually, it's not a capital problem. My diagnosis is two things. There's an operator talent challenge um, and there's a culture challenge. So let me, let me unpack those yeah. individually. So, so, you know, operator talent. Um, so the density of top operators in Canada and the U.S. are very different. And, you know, there are some, some success stories, Zineworks, Epsalera, Chinook, all had very successful IPOs. Clementia and Clarissa Desjardins had a billion-dollar exit dips and some rising stars, Deep Genomics is one of them. But the talent is geographically disconnected and pretty spread out. And we're not, I'm not sure yet we have the critical mass where, like, I'm not bumping into another, like, serial entrepreneur at the coffee shop like I was, you know, in San Francisco or MIT or et cetera, right? So I think there's a little bit of a, a challenge from an operator perspective. I think we see a lot of first-time Canadian co-founders that are doing this off the corner of their desk, 10% of their time, part-time, as executives. Not as scientific co-founders, which is totally reasonable, but as executives. And I think it's really hard as a first-time founder to do that. I think, I think it's, you can do that to a certain point, but the length of time I've seen that is kind of remarkable. And it's living off of, you know, non-dilutive grant after grant. Um, and candidly, like when I talk to many life sciences co-founders, it's like when I mention the word target product profile or integrated development plan, I kind of get the blank eyes. And like, those are like <laughs> really elements of, of, of life science company building. And yeah. so that's not a knock on anyone. I just think that means there's an opportunity, right? I think right. from an operator talent perspective, to be able to kind of shape that, put the, some of the top operators together, build an ecosystem that uh, we can learn from or start with kind of bringing some people up from the U.S. that have done it before that kind of help the next generation of operators. So I think that's like number one. I think there's a bit of a gap on the operator talent side. And then the second is on the culture piece, which, which I think both of these are changing just to be clear right. about where my current gap is. So I mentioned before the three types of science, right? Science, science, business science, investor science. And I think I think we're really good on the cultural aspect and the science science, but maybe not as good on the other sides. And so like in contrast, because you asked me the contrast in the US, at MIT, like Bob Langer, who's like obviously very famous, has like 40 companies out of his lab. George Church out of Harvard has 50 companies out of his lab, more than for both of these, right? The, the goal is actually company formation and company building, and that's rewarded and incentivized and celebrated. And I'm not sure we support recruiter incentivize, you know, successful entrepreneurial scientist phenotypes that our goal is to build company type professors. Uh, I think we're trying to, and I think we're doing that more and more. I'm not sure if we're quite there yet. And there's some examples that are starting, but I think that's an area where I think that like intersection between kind of culture and operator talent, I think that's where maybe there's opportunities more than capital. I think the capital is there. I think the capital's not deploying that capital because perhaps there's not the right kind of company formation all the time. And if we think that we have the right company, but if, as a first time founder, you have blinders on and you don't know what you don't know sometimes. Right. 
And so if we, Zane, Zane, if we were to think of that sort of as a vector, you know, so it sounds like directionally we're moving right, but the magnitude is not not quite there. What you know, it's going to ask you later, but let's ask you now. <laughs> what, what what do you what what are the things you see that would actually increase the magnitude of that vector? Because I guess the question is, are we willing to wait another decade or two or three or four? The answer might be yes, but what can we do to accelerate that? You know, as you go around, what are you seeing that might be sort of low hanging fruits that would sort of accelerate? Yeah. Um, that process of getting us the right operators, you know, yeah. part of it may be geography, but maybe there are ways to overcome that around sort of operator density. Um, but even the executive working off the desk, I guess my immediate question is like, well, why are they operating off the corner of their desk? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Right. So, so what, what, do you have any thoughts on that? I and mean, then maybe there, there aren't any, but, but yeah, no, I have, I have three thoughts on what we could do um, to actually help catalyze the magnitude of that effect. Um, so I think, so first is, you know, we're a small country by number of people, but punch above mm-hmm. our weight from an innovation perspective. So let's, let's like call it a spade a spade, right? So it's going to be very difficult to be a leader in everything, you know, and sprinkle right. kind of entrepreneurial fairy dust on all domains. That'd be very difficult to win. Whereas, you know, China and the U.S. probably can't actually. They just have enough of that, those ecosystems, right? right? Yeah. So we have to be a bit more ruthless in thinking about how we, um, uh, approach innovation. So my concept, I think, would be something like a life sciences centers of excellence program, right? So where you you do kind of a couple of really unique things. You don't, you know, first you like look in the mirror and evaluate, you know, three therapeutic areas in which you have true superpowers. Like honestly, like other people think, not us. <laughs> other right, right. You know, centers think we have the world leading scientists, clinicians, and importantly, data sets, right? Then you evaluate what are the three technology superpowers that we have, right, from the other vertical, right? So whether that's machine learning or stem cell therapies or whatever that is. And you really look in the mirror and you evaluate that. Then you say, okay, let's vet that with a third-party VCs and leading farmers to make sure we're accurate. We're not just like, you know, in our own echo chamber. And then this is the, this is the next two steps are kind of the more interesting approach. You would invest deeply in a product-oriented way, meaning business investor type sciences, leveraging kind of biotech best practices, TPPs, IDPs, and you embed accountable industry experience, project managers and program leaders into academia to execute and align on those IDPs. So that's kind of a center of excellence model that I think would actually really drive true value. Let's look at number one. Number two, I would recruit and incentivize kind of professors with a history of successful company building. Those are the Bob Langers, George Chirps, Eric Hall, phenotypes. Bring them over the border, uh, continue to support the ones that are here, but bring more because that's going to change. Their postdocs are going to change. And there's like a knock-on effect, right? There's a domino effect. And then third, and perhaps this is counterintuitive because there hasn't been a longstanding relationship between these groups, but I would actually deepen the relationship between <laughs> academia and VC. So um, there is a program that was started I think, last year by MIT and North Pond Ventures where there's like... Uh, cross-pollination of, of like ideas and people and funding that kind of goes across. And I think that's really powerful, especially if you tack on like patient groups within that, you know, trifecta. I think there could be an opportunity to really kind of cross-pollinate where I think VCs will learn a lot from the academic side. And I think academics can learn a lot from the VC side from a development perspective, what they're looking for. And I think that like has an impact on the culture and addresses kind of that second piece. So I also think it helps with operators coming across border uh, and even just strengthening internally. So I think those are the three, like three things that I would think about that would potentially kind of lead to an increase in that kind of magnitude of effect. 
Got it. So, so it's interesting because I was going to ask you. Um, I'm going to ask you now, obviously. <laughs> you know, there's there's this phrase, and 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 you're closer to it than I am, but sort of this idea of sort of a founder-led venture versus a VC-led led vent, like you know, like a flagship pioneering, take the science, bring it out, put a team around it, you know, de-risk it quickly, build it to Series A, and then out it goes. You know, and and I guess the, the piece that is sort of interesting is. It, from what I hear, West Coast tends to be more founder-led. East Coast tends to be more VC-led. I don't know. You can weigh in on that. But for Canada, what I just heard you say, it, it's maybe a best of blend, but I didn't hear that maybe a successful way is just to let a founder you know, go through the school of hard knocks. That might not be the best and fastest way to increase the magnitude for us to get there. Maybe I interpreted that wrong, but it sounds like for a little while, it may be better just to kind of keep that technology, bring those people who have a little bit of skill set, get a couple of cycles in, get products out to market, and then kind of let people, you know, out, let them loose a bit more after that. Is that, is that maybe the well, way? I think at the macro level, that's kind of true. I think it's very, you know, founder specific, like a serial sure, entrepreneur yeah. founder, like someone like a Peter Zonstra that's spun out notch. Right. It's very yeah. different. But I think if you're asking at a macro, like the public yeah. health answer, right, is, is yeah, I, I would say that I think there's benefit in just because the density right now mm. is just not quite at critical mass is that it's, you know, as a first time founder, founder led kind of in San Francisco or Boston, I'm just running into founders all the time. So it's like right. it just naturally leads to like an informal network of founders of, you know, entrepreneurs that are just like always just chatting about that. I just not sure yet we have the critical mass. It'll come. Um, and I think it'll be like pocketed and isolated. And I think we have to help catalyze that. And I think the best way to catalyze that is that, kind of, you know, uh, centers of excellence type way slash, you know, bringing in kind of some of those other parties and working with VC and farm. And again, corporate farm is great too. Corporate farm is not usually very like seasoned veterans with building companies from within, right? right. Internal innovation. And so, but I think they can like vet ideas like, oh, we're not interested in this. And this is why we're not interested. And they have a beautiful skill set on business development. Like, well, this is what be attractive. If you have technology that can do X, Y, Z, you know, it allows you to set the bar. So I, for me, I think it's bringing together multiple stakeholders, but I think, um, I think we're underweight kind of, I think the product developers and investors that can move things forward and we're maybe not overweight, but I think we have a disbalance between the academics that are doing the science science versus the kind of product development science. Got it. Makes sense. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of switch gears a little bit and I'm going to talk about everyone's favorite topic, IP, <laughs> right? Like, like we can't stop talking about IP here, how it's all, you know, the TTO's faults and, and all that, you know, it's, it's the innovator you, you had mentioned earlier, they're holding on PIs are holding on to things, not de declaring this to TD. Let's leave all for a second. But if I'm not, if, if I'm not mistaken, you know, I think Harvard and I was a bit shocked at this, but Harvard, Stanford, MIT all have institutional owned IP policies. So they're not like Waterloo where it's inventor owned, where I think people think like that's the magic pixie dust. And if we did that, everything would be all right. And I think you've debunked some of those kind of concepts with other issues, but um, what was, you know, what was your experience Sort of, and maybe you didn't have this sort of with with IP and moving it from sort of maybe, and you didn't have this experience from Open Biome to Finch Therapeutics. Where do we like? Where do people get caught up in this sort of whole IP thing? Is it a real, is it a real issue, or is it a perceived issue, or is it you know something totally different that we're just not thinking? Because I think anyone would be hard pressed to say Harvard, Stanford, MIT doesn't actually punch above their weight in life sciences. 
well, clearly they have institutional one day peace. So it's just a matter of they have magical TTO officers and we don't like, like, <laughs> we're, like I'm just wondering, like, where's the, where's the bugaboo here? Cause, cause yeah, I was surprised. No, I- no, I, I totally agree. I think this is an interesting topic and, and one that's like worth further unpacking. It's so multidimensional. But I think to me, like if I were to boil it all up what the issue is, I think there's a I think there's a problem with aligning incentives across TTOs, tech transfer personnel, the people actually like boots on the ground, and then the company builders. There's like a disincent there's a disconnect. And so like let's go through this. So like so first like downside protection. So like let's say I'm at the TTO and um, you're trying to outlicense some like technology that you developed. And, you know, I'm thinking I need a, to win this deal because if this company becomes the next unicorn, like, and we didn't get our cut, like some senior person is going to come down and like wag their finger at me and like right. probably fire me. And so understandably, I think of a downside protection only, right? Like I don't really mind, my incentives are not aligned to be thinking about what happens if this company folds because they can't get you know, appropriate terms to raise funding on, or right. if this company doesn't exist, like there's no penalty for me for that, right? Like that is a disincentive to say, well, that's, you know, look, if it's a unicorn, great. And I think we over, accordingly, we overvalue, you know, that deal value. So I think that's like number one. And number two, this is kind of like, I think uh, a lack of upside incentive, probably for the people, TTOs and maybe the individual personnel. It's kind of been my preliminary observation that the TTOs don't necessarily at this stage, or at least in Canada right now, have the senior folks with operator experience, because there's already an operator deficit, um, with a deep Rolodex of potential partners and services and support that allow companies to come and scale and and actually like build that, right? Like, cool, like we're going to call in Merck and Pfizer, we're going to open that, no, we're going to help you do your IDP, we're going to help with your pitch. I think right now there's a paucity of that part of that might be related to no upside potential. But I will say this university that you mentioned have pretty exemplary TTOs that have a deep Rolodex. They've done deals before with many people. They can make intros. They can know how to pitch. They're pretty senior level people in the ecosystem. They're not, um, you know, uh, like really junior people that are just kind of figuring themselves out. Um, so I think there's, I think that is a pretty big difference. Um I, I'm not sure if they have like upside incentives, but that's yeah. a way to figure it out. But but I think just by nature that the talent shuffles a little bit. And yeah, I don't know if the Waterloo model of keeping IP and hoping that like Chamath Palihapajit comes back and makes a big donation works. But but I think there are some ways to optimize TTO that it's hard. It's hard to change systems and processes that have been ingrained for a long time. Um, yeah. It's really, really hard and it's hard to like find the right talent. But I think that those are the two observations that, I would make is like downside protection. Like there's just no, there's no penalty for a company right. not existing. And then, you know, limited upside in part potentially by the talent that's um, missing in Canada generally, but also in, in the TTO. Interesting. Okay. That, that makes, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah. So if I were to, yeah, if I were to so kind of maybe use your vernacular and t- totally screw it up is, is there doesn't seem to be any penalty for sort of a false negative. You can let those, potential big unicorn goes and nobody cares, but you don't want to miss just in case, right? Yeah. The, the big ones. So yeah. interesting. Okay. Um, kind of c- continue maybe a little bit on IP, but, but moving a little bit different. Um, I want to talk about the culture aspect because, because I see that as a major issue. Um, and, and, and again, maybe quite happy to be wrong here. So um, strong views weekly held, I guess. Um, when I was in medical school, Zane, so back when we had chisels and tablets in in in, in, the, in the rooms and we we're taking notes with with our chisels and tablets, <laughs> co- commercialization was just like frowned upon. Like it was like just like it was 
like it's the dark side period end of story there wasn't even a discussion right yeah. like it was it was it was literally a black and white um issue and 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 we're changing and i think i think sort of you know obviously you mentioned you know boston where i think the ecosystem will be more robust some of the metrics actually include commercialization not just the paper um publications and so what i guess what i'm curious is did you get a sense when you were down there that it was an entire cultural ecosystem that believed in there? Or was it, you mentioned a couple of names, is what we're getting is just a very filtered myopic view of just a few labs that are punching above their weight and everyone else who we don't hear about is still much like our ecosystem here. Um, I'm just sort of curious what your sense was. Was it like everybody is going for that dream of building a big company or a company to have patient impact? Or is it just the Bob Langers of the world and he's just really prolific? And if you walk down, the rest of the five or six labs are still focused on, you know, the next conference and the next uh, peer review publication. Like, like, is it really, you know, is it really robust as we're to believe? Um, what's, what's your sort of sense of that? Yeah, I'd say the culture is different, but not every lab is focused on, you know, making unicorns, right? I, I think there are people that are trying to do really good science science in, in yep. the Boston ecosystem, but I think there's also many people that are doing kind of, um, you know, company creation and building models. There's just another path that exists. Right. But I do think the culture is different because I, I think, you know, even saying the word commercialization gives me chills from back in the day. <laughs> and uh, and it's not, part of it's like, I don't, I don't particularly like the word commercialization, if I'm honest with you, because it's actually making medicines for patients or making devices for patients, right? Like, right. And one of the things that was really powerful and inspirational for me is I went to School of Public Health at Harvard and like one of the places that's very much about like the global good. And we had the president of, um, well, we had two people, pre former president of Norway and also similarly Jim Kim, the former president, the former World Bank lead. And they came and basically said, guys, like we have to partner with pharma and partners. Like we got HIV medicines to Haiti because we partnered with, with pharma. Like they're not all evil. And like, I think there's this like negative halo effect, I guess, or I guess a horn effect that like oversees it. And I think we have a chance to change our own destiny. And I think by emphasizing the word commercialization, you're emphasizing the the profit or revenue aspects right. by emphasizing, that's why I say like impact on patients, not impact factor, because it's the, the fact that we have to get our technology to our patients. And like, that's mm -hmm. what we all care about. And so I think just part of it's a bit of a reframe, um, a little bit of thinking about the language go to market like we, we use it so much and it's like it's not a right yeah. factor. like that's not the goal it's like get to patients <laughs> um and i think i think part of it's just like figuring how to you know framing matters right like i spent my i spent a lot of my you know my time trying to make you know poop kind of like uh <laughs> uh more appealing and like the, the poop that would feel safe giving to my grandmother right so yeah. i think the narrative and storytelling around that matters we underestimate that sometimes that's part of it then the other part of it, which is what you're asking more directly, is, is the culture matter. Oh, of course the culture matters. The fact that it's an expectation to do a paper and start a company in some labs. Yeah, that's like that had it that was an expectation. It's like your company might fail. It's okay. But put together a business plan, put together an IDP, put together a TPP as a learning experience, right? I think that's part of it. Um, and so you see this system where like people are pitching in their ideas and they're cross-pollinating and you should talk to this person, you should talk to this person and I'm running to a physicist in the coffee shop. And, and you know, you're just trying to put together right. ideas from reverse. And I think Atul Gawande is like, was right. I think, you know, he talks about in Checklist Manifesto that he learned from the airline industry and applied that to the operating theater. And that's why he saw, you know, a tremendous reduction in, you know, post-operative complications and mortality. 
And I think setting up cultures where we do get that cross-pollination and not in our verticals, because tend to, when we focus on science, science, we tend to get stuck a little bit on that vertical a little bit more because that's the conferences and that's the ecosystem, but flipping God's head and opening up kind of horizontally, whether that's, you know, the innovation kind of entrepreneurs, whether that's another area of science, whether that's hanging out with pilots, right? Like, I think we just have to think a little more creatively. And I think the hackathon, hackathon model and MIT for life science is like an interesting one to play with. I think Toronto's done a little bit of this as well. So if not, I think it can be done more, but you know, I think that's an area where we can get different types of people working together to solve a problem. And often companies come out of that actually, like you get to right. meet new people. So the, the, like to, to, to circle back to the answers, I think it's different, but maybe not as different as everyone makes it out to seem. Got it. So other than saying, other than changing, you know, the narrative, maybe a bit of the vernacular, you know, and, and, you know, hackathon spread here and there. Is, is that enough, do you think, to sort of change? And again, I'm not, again, not an events process, got it. But is that enough to change sort of the, these are my words, deep-seated sort of cultural changes in the, like these are deep within the faculty of medicines, right? Across our, across our country. Um, and, and, it, and, you know, so these are not, you know, these are things people have grown up with, with, you know, 10, 20, 30 years with this, right? Like, like, is there a magic Kool-Aid that we can kind of give them? And what, what, what do you, like, where is it? And where is this, you know, does it have to come out of Boston and we can kind of port, port it up here and happy to pay for it? But I'm just, I'm wondering, because to me, for life sciences, we can argue in other industries, maybe not, but the majority of our stuff comes from the faculties of medicine. That's where it emanates or the faculty of engineering, which is maybe sort of a little bit more loose, right? But certainly from a wet lab perspective, I think a lot of stuff emanates from there. So to me, they have to start to have that desire and that initiative. It doesn't mean they have to take it forward, as you said, they just might want to be the CSO or take it to point in hand, but it has to come from them, I would think, just to think, hey, this to make impact needs to get to the patient, as you just said. How am I going to do that? Yeah. I can write as many CIHR grants as I want to, but it's not actually going to close that gap, right? Yeah. So to me, it has to emanate from there at some point. How? What do we do to sort of move yeah. move that, right? So yeah. other than the things you mentioned, I mean, I, I don't know if there's anything else. Yeah, I think there's kind of three comments to that. So first is, I mean, you'll know this in medicine too. Like sometimes you just don't try to change the the some of the dinosaurs that are just too, yep. they're too ingrained and that's okay. I'm not, but you start to work on the next generation of leaders that are really going to be, five years or 10 years, there's, there has to, there's going to be attrition and there's going to be change. And I think, you know, one, one is just to make sure you're focusing on the right individuals and not, not trying to fight all elements of institutional inertia because there's, there's a lot of it. So focus on the things that you think are solvable problems and, and to somewhat receptive ears, right? And so you're getting the lieutenants of the like super elite kind of PIs, right? And then you're trying to work with them to be able to say, all right, there are other paths, you know, let's, we'll support you. So that's like kind of one thought. The second thought is kind of going back to this like idea of uh, life sciences centers of excellence, right? Really focusing on like very deep verticals and then building these people together. The reason that Y Combinator is successful is not because it's in San Francisco, is because they had a couple of successes, like Airbnb and Dropbox. And then people went there because there were successes. And then those cohorts helped the previous cohort. And there's this like, virtuous cycle of innovation. And so that's why I think the idea that I was sharing before about a, like, you know, life sciences centers of excellence that focused ruthlessly on you know, three types of technologies or three types of uh, you know, therapeutic areas that were truly world-class in put them together in a cohort and allow them to cross-pollinate. I was part of this fellowship at Harvard and I, the, the concept was you're going to have much more of an impact if you meet different types of people. So they funded um, kind of 
uh, rising stars across various domains. And then they made us have a social event, actually, which is I went to like a ballet and then I went to a Celtics game, got drinks. And it sounds crazy, but those things led to like, I ended up writing a paper with a policy person. I ended up recruiting a global health person to like be a CMO. Like it's like, totally people I would have not engaged with. Right. But now because we built the social fabric, not yeah. like a artificial, like, you right. know, a boardroom, but we were actually legitimately friends because we saw the world in unique ways and we had a chance to learn. I think it's like one other vertical. And then the last vertical is change incentives, right? The incentives are not celebrated or aligned. Like I can tell you the solution if you tell me what the incentives are or the outcome if you tell me what the incentives are. And I I, I don't think we are um, incentivizing that. If, If that's a goal, then we have to go back and talk about promotion and tenure and how that works. <laughs> and right. those are hard questions that are you know, embedded, as you said. But if, if we really want to make changes, as opposed to saying we want to make changes, saying we want to be like Boston without being Boston is very different. But George Church and Bob Langer are celebrated, right? Like they're, they're put on, on you know, uh, billboards effectively, right? Like the equivalent <laughs> yeah, of billboards, yeah. right? So we're, we don't yeah. do that, right? So I, I think there's, those are the three ways I would tackle it. It's not a problem you're going to solve tomorrow. But if you want to solve it, then these are some of the considerations that would give to it. Got it. Tell me, tell me, you know, and I don't know how much clinical work you did when you were down in Boston, but tell me, you know, the, the one thing I, and again, to your point earlier, right? I mean, we are changing slowly. Maybe the magnitude's not fast enough for all of us that I put myself in that bucket, but it is changing. Tell me about that interaction between, or sort of that interface between clinicians and what I'm going to call scientists, because my perspective, and it's certainly, you know, it, it's certainly been very myopic. It doesn't really work across all ecosystems. University of Calgary may be different than U of T versus whatever, but it seems to be that here they're in silos. Clinicians do what clinicians do. Scientists do what scientists do. And through your work, serendipitously, they might meet up at a later stage and then kind of walk things back, realizing what the other one didn't realize and kind of reinvent. And, you know, that creates a lot of friction. It increases time. And time for ventures is expensive. Is that is that is there a better model in Boston? Like, is there more integration, or is it the same thing? And it's just other factors kind of lead them to, to market maybe a little bit quicker. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, MGH Mass General wanted me to come do scopes and, and see patients, and I'm like, there's only there's only I'm working already like 100 hours a week, so it's gonna be really tough to do that. And it's hard to be good at everything all at the same time. So I didn't spend a lot of time, you know, practicing clinical medicine there, but okay. obviously it was very closely integrated with the clinicians in the ecosystem. And I have a couple observations. So. So one, I would say that the clinicians there, in my experience compared to your, had a had a more fully integrated like patient registries that are part of their their daily practice. Meaning they had high quality clinical data. Plus, this is the important part, important for scientists, biosamples. So they integrated and collected biosamples for specific diseases, whatever disease they were, right. their clinic was right. in specifically dealing with whatever X, Y, Z, then they had that data set and they would go and mine that for clinical papers. Um, but then they were saying, oh, we have all these samples too. Like, let's go and figure out who we can talk to in scientists. And I think that's why I like when I came back, that, you know, coming back to the idea around life sciences, kind of centers of excellence over a therapeutic area, you can do that, right? You're like, great. Or versus technology, like we really want to look at immune profiling um, yeah. of X disease. Like, let's go and kind of do that. So, I think I would say organically that's happening. I think there's a lot of pressure, as there always is, to like develop innovation. And also, the clinicians that are talking to the industry a lot more. Um, okay. uh, I found as well. I think part of it's because I think industry feels, oh, like you know, some of those institutions have some big brand names, so there's some power in that. Um, right. So that's like you know, but I, I think that can happen here too. I think the 
like there are similarly big institutions here um, that can, can have that. In fact, not all institutions, but certainly some of them. And so I think that allows people to think a little bit outside the box. And I think as we're moving to a world where data will be like the new drug, I think right. those types of data collection sets that are unique, um, world-class and essentially proprietary, right, are very powerful. I think, I think my experience is that uh, Boston has that a little bit more and then kind of tap in <laughs> than, than I've seen so far. Part of it's, you know, again, back to remuneration, right? Like if you're a fee-for-service yeah. doctor, why would you, like, it's very hard for you to do that. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. If you're, a little your salary is a very different conversation if you're getting, so I think there's a couple of factors, again, incentive goes back to incentives, but that's been one of my observations. Got it. Perfect. So, you know, mindful of time, so there's a couple of questions left here. Um, I, you know, I'm a big believer in optionality. I, I, I like, I just love the way they work. I think in, in life, I think we sort of underestimate their effectiveness just in daily, you know, outside the financial markets. I think, I think you believe in well, but, but you can push back on that. Um, if we're sort of think of that sort of optionality model, how, how, how would you maybe apply that to kind of what you've seen in the Canadian life sciences ecosystem? I guess more specifically, you've mentioned, you know, these life sciences centers actually excellent several times. And I, I like that. And I guess, if you had to make sort of bold, calculated bets on behalf of Canada, you know, I appointed you a czar for a day. Where would you allocate your life sciences money to in terms of technology and or domains? Like what three bets do you see that like if Canada, you know, got their stuff together, this is where actually they could really make sort of an outsized impact in terms of patient uh, care and technology and innovation, however you want to frame that. What, what are you seeing? What's, where would you do that? Yeah, no, I, I would take a step back before even getting to right to those areas. And I'll give you a couple of examples in, in a second here. But I really think running a process um, is important to get to understanding where you think your three therapeutic superpowers are, you know, really, truly, and where your technology. I know some examples that pop to mind for me is, for example, inflammatory bowel disease in Canada, highest per capita in the entire world. The the investigators that are doing the trials or getting sought out actively in advice, they're here in Canada. The biggest data sets, some of the biggest data sets are like from a biorepository perspective, mm -hmm. they're here in Canada. So, you know, that's one example of a therapeutic yeah, yeah. area where you can say it's not all centers, but like in terms of Canada, we, we have some of the best leaders right here in Canada that, and we have the population, we have the, the equipoise to, to really focus on that as an example Similarly, I would do a deep dive and be really meticulous about our technology types. Like, what are we truly world-class in? And, you know, the International Development Research Center said, Canada's number six in the world in AI, ML, right? And so there may be a set of engineers that are really, you know, that we're really excited about. Maybe you want to continue to push towards the, you know, the deep genomics of the world on drug discovery aspects. And we have unique data sets, right? And kind of really focus on that set of the world, recognizing where I think there is a bit of a gap is that, we have a ton of like software engineers, but not necessarily biologically trained ML folk. So at MIT, when, when I did my ML training, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? Like it is a meta-analysis, right? And so if you're training on the wrong data sets and or the wrong endpoints, if you're training on a symptom endpoint as opposed to an endoscopic endpoint, your outcome is going to be very different. And so you have right. to be able to train polyglots across these domains. And I think that's an opportunity because we have a large disproportionate set of really talented and software engineers can we build a set or teach them or build complementary sets that are also, you know, uh, facile in like feature engineering, 
for important biology, right? Like that's still important in, in the machine learning process. And so I think that's another example where you could say, okay, are we truly world-class in this? Yes, no, go vet that and validate that with third-party VCs on a specific idea, you know, with pharma as the council, and then, and then embed those kind of, you know, project managers, program leads that are accountable directly for pushing out a product across an IDP or a TPP within academia to get something, to get a company out, right? So I think there's, or an EIR, you can call them whatever you want, right, but I think right. the idea is really say the goal is this and, and put some water to the pipe. So a couple of examples, but I think running a formal process, everyone has their pet project because they're usually yes. So you have to kind of like, you know, NBA, all-star voting where you can't vote for your own players kind of situation um, is, is right. probably the way to do it. Got it. What, what have you seen that most excites you as you kind of travel from whatever Vancouver to Newfoundland and everywhere in between? What, what, what sort of, what sort of, you know, piquing your interest and saying like, wow, that's actually pretty interesting. I haven't seen that before or, or, or maybe I have seen it before, but it's equivalent to, you know, something else that a, a high functioning area, like whatever the Bay or, or Boston is doing. Has anything kind of piqued your interest? Yeah, I would say that you know, I had a chance to kind of go coast to coast. I'm part of the advanced therapies and Rocky CDL streams. Yeah, I'm yeah, also yeah. Uh, uh, on the UC investment committee or IAG, I guess they call it. So I've had a chance to kind of see things very, very broadly. And, and I think, you know, there's always like four, the way that I break up healthcare innovations in kind of four domains, the four Ds. So like drug development, you know, device development, digital, and then um, kind of delivery technologies, like, and that's like, you know, EMRs, all kinds of other things. Right. And I would say that like, um, there's some interesting aspects across all of these. Um, and and so I, I wouldn't like cherry pick one. I think, you know, obviously I'm in the advanced therapies stream. So right. like cell therapies are particularly interesting right now in thinking about novel therapies within the cell, cell therapy world and figuring out how to apply it directly because it's things are a crowded space as well so to me it's not like a technology alone by itself like even CRISPR is like it's interesting but CRISPR has to be applied to the right kind of indication in the right product that gets gets me most exciting um, but I, I will say that like uh, the machine learning aspects and drug discovery is really interesting to me and I think you know, Drug Bank, for example, which is a repository as well as Deep Genomics, I think are two examples of that in this industry that I think are going to be, um, it can be very, very powerful because of the synergies. I think it has to be, right. the ecosystem has to be built out a little bit more. But I think, you know, uh, obviously Deep Genomics had an oversubscribed round, SoftBank led the round, very successful kind of output. Um, you know, when you have Tal Zax, who, who, who I've run into across my, my journeys as well, kind of join your, join your as an advisor. Orvinode Kosala, those are great kind of yeah. proof points, right? And then same with drug bank, obviously, like really interesting data set. How are you able to kind of leverage that? So I think the ML drug discovery area is really, really interesting. But to me, it always goes back to like, what's the talent operator wise, as well as um, in this case, like polyglot MLs uh, yeah. or, or engineers. And then two, what are the data sets? And, and are they proprietary? Can you access them that no one has? So it's applying that specifically for a, indication uh with a unique data set so if you can say gosh i want to apply that to i don't know psc or like you know a rare disease then you have this unique data set that gives you a lot of power and i think we're still figuring that out but i see some early developments going in the right direction super fantastic mindful of time zane um the the, the two questions i kind of find I, I have for for every sort of guest is is and one is sort of the first one is and I'll be interested from your answer because you, you have a varied background in sort of healthcare, but is 
you know, a lot of people here are trying to change the healthcare system for the better, right? Like we're all trying to move it forward in our own way, as you said, and uh, we all have a vested interest in that. As, as, as we move sort of to the, to the next instantiation of the future of healthcare here in Canada, whatever that might be look like, whatever that might look like, I'm curious, what wouldn't you want to change and why? What would you like to stay the same? Yeah. Because not no, everything I, is bad. Yeah. So I, I would say like the culture of learning and curiosity amongst the healthcare ecosystem in Canada is, is actually amazing. And I practice a product of the multicultural nature of Canada. Um, but I think our healthcare system folks that are driving you know, innovation really aim to learn from other systems in other countries around the world. And in fact, you know, go to other places in the world to come and then come back and try to take the best parts of, of those systems and processes and try to make it, you know, innovate in our own kind of, uh, in, our, in our own world. And I think there is a culture of trainees going abroad, EUS, EU elsewhere and coming back, which I think is really great. I think we're still figuring out the best way to execute on those plans. All right. But I think that like, don't forget that the underpinning is that, innovation is still like at the heart of it, it comes from learning and curiosity. And I think we still have that here, which I think is, I can't say everywhere in the world. And I think it's really powerful to like hang on to that um, and be facile and not being so rigid, uh, but, but open to, well, why would that work? Or like, tell me more. I think you can learn something from everybody. And I feel that folks in our ecosystems are very much about, well, how can we get better? Feedback's a gift. Like, I think that that's very much the case and we still have to figure out how to implement but in terms of like the ideation i think that's there awesome i love that as a great answer i don't think i haven't had that on all my shows yet so fantastic thank you for that zane if people want to sort of stay in touch with you reach out to you kind of ping you for your sort of knowledge and your wealth of experience and expertise what's the best way of kind of getting in touch with with zane yeah i'm not a prolific social media guy but i do i am on twitter so at dr zane says uh, at right. Dr. Zane says, drop me a, uh, drop me a follow or, or, or tweet at me and, uh, I'm sure I'll get back to you and, uh, always happy to kind of, uh, talk shop and give some of my insights into to what I think is just to be clear, an amazing opportunity for Canadian life science. Like, I think we're at this precipice yeah. and everything left is about timing. And I think we're at this like unique precipice of opportunity. And I want, I want to make sure we walk away with that kind of in mind. I think despite the opportunities to grow, like that's great. We're at this unique time though. And, innovation happens it has to be at the right time it's the most important more important than the actual the technology or the people is actually the timing gotta get the timing right can't be too late can't be too early and i think i think we're at the right time i love it i love it. it's exactly you you said it way better than i could have so that's perfect thank you zane i appreciate all your time love you on the show and we'll have to get you back again my pleasure looking forward to it all right cheers thanks for listening to this episode of reboot health i hope you found it insightful Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. Until then, stay well and stay safe.